I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's such a pleasure to welcome Helen Mort and Caroline Bird. Um, and it feels like sort of getting back onto a poetry programme after, uh, after the terrible few years we've had. The last gig we did before we had to uh, shut down for the pandemic was um, was poetry, uh, Linton Quezzy Johnson and uh, Lorna Goodison, and it's it's wonderful to be getting new new poetry readings going on. It's such a treat to uh, to have poetry read in the shop. Um, Helen and Caroline don't uh, need very much introduction from me. Helen started out with um, Division Street from uh, Chateau. Donkeys years ago um, has followed it with um, followed it with no map could show them and now the illustrated woman Caroline started out equally donkeys years ago with looking through letterboxes followed it with acres and acres most recently the air year and most even more recently than that rookie the selected poems such a piece of kit Make sure you have one. It's, um, they'll be reading for about 15 minutes each, following which they'll be in conversation for another 15 minutes, following which there'll be time for questions from the floor with this, the roving mic. Um, so if you have any questions, store them up. Following which there'll be time to buy these marvellous books, time to get them signed, time to recharge your drinks, time to, to chat and, and that... And uh, then we'll kick you all out. Um, the um, health and safety notes are, if there's a fire, then leave via the doors. Um, don't do anything creative. Um, if you've placed your glasses at your feet during the reading, which is a perfectly sensible place to, to place them, then remember they're there when you stand up and don't kick them over. Um, if your phone is on, then, then turn it off. That concludes the notices. Um, <laughs> welcome, welcome. Thanks Jolly good so to much. see you. Thank you. Hello. I'm going to go first. Um, so I've got... So Rookie is a selected poem, so it goes back to my first book, which was published when I was 15. But um, the, a lot of the poems were written when I was, like, 12, 13, right at the beginning. So I had my first first poem that I remember writing, and I wrote it in school, 
Um, it goes like this. It was, I basically, I peaked, and then it's been downhill since then. It's called Owl Poem. I refuse to write a poem about an owl. Better to write about a person with an owl, or a person who wants an owl, or better still, a person who hates owls and will never have an owl. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's it. No. Um, but I think what's weird is even though I've been writing poetry for, for so long, I've always found poetry quite embarrassing. Like, the idea of it, you know, the idea, I was always felt like, I don't want to be earnest. I don't want to say what I mean. I don't want to um, be sincere. You know, I always found that quite scary. And, like, I noticed a lot of my poems came almost like, like from that same impulse of, like, I'm not going to write a poem. I'm going to do this instead. And then it's a poem. So, you know, it's a catch-22. But, you know, um, this, this one I wrote when I was, like, 13. And I remember, remember kind of um, knowing that heartbreak was a thing that poets wrote about. And... And I couldn't resist wanting to kind of take the piss out of myself for writing it at the same time as really feeling it, which is generally the clash that I have a lot of the time. It's called Your Heartbreak. No one else is having your heartbreak. Your perfect pulsing peach and scarlet syrup. Your creamy self-pitying. Not even when the whole world is stacked like chairs and you are milky-eyed with sleep, honey, chocolate, blues before bedtime, right here where your hand is all yours. A beautiful, bleeding, spouting red roses picked in two halves from the heartbreak tree. Heartbreak, it is your prize. You've earned it, heaved it up from the wishing well of your throat, treasured it, fed it with tears the size of cupcakes and nights like shining spoons. No one else is having your heartbreak or the way it makes the sound of horses' hooves if you hold a piece in either hand and bang it together like a coconut. So I, I was quite bullied as a kid. And um, but this, my response was it uh, uh, to it was always right. What's the kind of how do I write a poem that will simultaneously express my pain without making me feel exposed? So how do I hide and confess simultaneously? Is what I'm constantly trying to do. I think it's like why else would you write a poem when you could just say it plainly? You know, instead you want to dip dip your truth in a kind of wax. And hide it. So this is this is another one. I wrote like 13. Well, I came to see if you were okay. I came to see if you were okay. Not because I'm bothered, but because my mate asked me to, because he had something to do. It probably could have waited until tomorrow and all that, but he wasn't gonna come anyway. But his mom said, or something, but anyway, I was asked to tell you, at least I think I've remembered it right, that there's no need to be down and stuff because we'll always be your friends. I'm not actually part of that we because I don't know you. Anyway, you look okay. <laughs> right? But that idea, that idea of a poem that looks okay is, it always interested me. Um, so the next you know, bit of the collection was when I was, it was published when I was 19. So most of it I wrote when I was 16, 17. And I was having a relationship at the time with a 28-year-old, which would probably be, someone would intervene, right, if it was happening now, but they didn't at the time. <laughs> Um, and uh, and I, I was constantly writing these poems, subconsciously or not, where I was clashing something innocent with something incredibly grown up. This is a poem called Relationship Dolls, which, I mean, yeah, I think I was 16. Relationship Dolls. I was thinking about opening a doll factory. Grumpy, tired-looking dolls with messy hair and scowling teeth. Talking dolls, 
Dolls that talk and talk and talk and talk. You pull a string from their back and they scream, this just isn't working. Where am I going with my life? Or I need some time alone. Dolls that cry until you stamp on them. Dolls that need 37 batteries just to keep going. Dolls that come with baggage, piles and piles of useless accessories guaranteed to clutter every inch of your house. Each doll will be unique, some with bent noses, some with broken hearts, some with scarred wrists that tumble from their chest when you burp them. Don't burp them. Dolls that won't be patronized. Dolls with revolving heads. Dolls that will sit on your pillow and watch you while you sleep. Why would you buy such a doll? Why spend your money, all your money, on a doll like this? A doll that will drink your gin, forbid you to touch other dolls. A doll that will insist upon marriage. A doll you can rest in the crook of your arm. A lover you can legally drown. <laughs> Yeah, I was a big fan of the abrupt ending, right, in the earlier poems, like, of just like, no, I'm just going to end it here, ha, 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 you know, it's same as like, uh, you know, think, thinking of what would my teacher when I was 12 say was definitely not a poem, so you can't end it there, you can't end it there, um, but then in terms of, in terms of the jokes of the poem, and I mean, they're not jokes, but the more you live, the more, the more, pe the more pain there is, the more, um, Intense and inventive your jokes have to get, you know, um, to keep dancing on the hot sand. Uh, so this is from a bit later. There once was a boy named Bosch. There once was a boy named Bosch who had a shallow family. Daddy shallow dealt in motor cars. His favorite word was repercussion. And he always kept mummy shallow in pocket, if not in peace. She was a narcissist who'd perfected the wilting flower. Dr. Shallow gave her pills for her nerves. We all have nerves, said Bosch. But Brother Shallow was found hanging in the attic like an off-light bulb. So Grandma Shallow did the cooking, and Shallow neighbours constructed carpools to get Bosch to school. Teacher Shallow collected money for nearly dead children in hot places, and Bosch was supposed to say a little something in assembly. But Brother Shallow was all the way dead, and where's his money? The Shallow girls found Bosch mean and sexy when he got blind with self-loathing. Mummy Shallow said, why can't you play football? Because she only cared about external achievements, and Daddy Shallow polished himself in his dark Mercedes. It's like they're zombies, Bosch thought, who don't have any blood, eating their McDonald's onion rings, telling me they're hurting too. So Bosch started drinking lots and lots of beer and whiskey, like an adult does when he loses something big, like a poker game or a piece of paper with a number on it. My shallow family are so shallow, Bosch said, they probably wouldn't notice if I was hung too. And Bosch was wrong about this, but Bosch put a dressing gown cord round his neck as Daddy Shallow watched American Beauty downstairs and Sister Shallow swallowed leeches in her bedroom to get skinny and Mummy Shallow wrote in her pink leather diary. Spat. It's me or the dog, she laughed. Though by dog, she meant void. And by laughed, I mean sobbed. And by me, she meant us. And by she, I mean you. And by all, she meant and. It's us and the void you sobbed. When I uh, arrived at rehab, when I was like 23 or something, they confiscated my... Um, my notebook, because I was kept on trying to translate all of the um, paperwork into surrealist poetry. And they, anyway, this is called a, sur a surreal joke. One year is blank on my curriculum vitae. I was in the desert, convalescing, repairing my septum. I tried to die expensively, 
dragging it out over six months, locked in my university bathroom with a rolled up scrap of canto. I forgot how to love my family. At one point, my arms turned completely blue. My assigned counselor told me I used poetry to hide from myself, unhook the ballast from my life, a floating ruse of surreal jokes. He stole my notebook. I said, they're not jokes. He said, maybe try to write the simple truth. I said, why? <laughs> so I write quite a lot of poems about crying in different ways, of like how, about thinking about different angles into crying, whether or not it's about tears getting jealous of each other, or this one was about a different invention. So I came up with several different inventions. The first one was when I was like 15, I came up with a, like an in-house lollipop lady to, to um, navigate your relationship, you know, who just like stand between you, like a crossing guards, you know, and like tell you when you could kiss and stuff. And then the, the, the second invention I came up with was called the monogamy optician. And they like slice off your peripheral vision surgically so you can't see anyone apart from your partner at all. Um, and, then, and then these are poems in here. I'm not just like ripping, you know. You know I, 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 oh, that would be quite impressive. Um, uh, and then I came up with this thing called Mystery Tears, which I saw on Twitter the other day. Someone has actually, well, I invented it, and they've copied it, and given me nothing. Um, but yeah, it's called Mystery Tears. You could order them from China over the internet. The website showed a grainy picture of Vivian Lee in Streetcar Named Desire. It was two vials for 20 euros, and they were packaged like AA batteries. They first became popular on the young German art scene. Thin boys would tap a few drops into their eyes, then paint their girlfriends, legs akimbo, and faces cramped with wisdom in the style of the Weimar Republic. It was sexy. They weren't like artificial Hollywood tears. They had a sticky, salty texture and a staggered release system. One minute, you're sitting at the dinner table, eating a perfectly nice steak. Then you're crying until you're sick in a plant pot. My partner sadly became addicted to mystery tears. A thousand pounds went in a month, and everything I did provoked despair. She loved the trickling sensation. It's so romantic, she said, and yet I feel nothing. She started labeling her stash with names like for another and things I dare not tell. She alternated vials, sometimes cried all night. She had bottles sent by special delivery, labeled not enough. A dealer sold a stuff cut with fairy liquid, street name River of Sorrow. Our flat shook and dampened, I never touched it. Each day she woke up, calmer and calmer. Read a few more. I love, you know, the, the weird silences and poetry readings. I'm saying, like, you, you never get, what, what I love about it is you never get, like, used to it. You never, like, there's never the same silence twice. You know, it's always awkward. Awkward. <laughs> like, poetry is just so intimately awkward. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean? It's like kissing someone for the first time when you're drunk and then they suddenly just stare you in the eyes. <laughs> and you're like, ah, I've got no idea who you are. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, right, I hate running over, so I'm not going to run over. Um, I'm going to do a couple more. So sometimes I will write a poem that pretty much is all fact, and I've just changed a few things, like that, that, that Bosch one is pretty much all fact. I've just made it sound surreal and zany. Um, 
sometimes I'll write a poem that is definitely like surreal or, or, or you know, um, I am uh, decanting it into the, the vessel of an idea and someone will think it's real. And, um, and someone came up to me um, at like a prize ceremony thing and they said, I'm so sorry to hear about your coma. That must have been so difficult. And I was like, <laughs> what? Right? We, and they were really, really sincere about all my time that I'd spent in hospital, which once you hear this poem, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing that they thought this was true. <laughs> right, anyway, it's called Muz Casanova on Life Support. The more beautiful women who gather around my bed with their soapy smells and letter-writing hands, the more deeply I pretend to be locked in this coma. They link arms in a circle, sing hymns, swapping the Oh Lord bits for my name. Most are singing ironically, but one or two are terrifyingly serious. At dusk, the eldest of the serious ones creeps in the window to sit and stroke my ankle with a feather. It's unnerving. I don't enjoy it. Occasionally, she whispers, I know. But I think she's just responding out loud to demanding late night work, work emails. Once she pressed the dark, big, hard book against my brow, that it better not be the Bible, I thought. Obviously, I couldn't say anything. Casanova in coma is the role of a lifetime. You can't corpse. If I'm feeling reckless, I might lift my lids for a second when the room is empty and still, just to reassure myself I'm not dead, but that's it. I can't risk one of the beautiful women catching me with my eyes open. The nurses march in to change my dirty tubes in funereal silence like I'm already an object, spiritless, personality-free, I prefer their brisk touch. It asks for little. Hell, it doesn't even ask me to live. Poor woman, I hear them think, but this means nothing. They think poor woman about everyone, including household pets and men. I'm baffled by the amount of edible goods I've received. Last time I chanced an eye flutter, my room resembled an artisan food market, loaded with quince, baklava, ostrich burgers, handcrafted chocolates in trendy boxes. Who is it all for? They'll be bringing me kites next, pogo sticks, BMXs. They've forgotten what a coma entails. It's like they're preparing for some almighty comeback. A sudden Lazarus moment when I leap from the linen, devour 20 truffles in one gulp, passionately snog all of them in turn with my stale tongue, then ride out the corridor on a gift-wrapped skateboard as they run behind whooping, throwing grapes like confetti. That is their communal dream. But then what? We all live in a house together. I choose one, I choose none. And the gratitude they'll expect so much, they'll say, I visited you every day in hospital, Casanova, for three years. I even skipped my own mum's funeral so as not to miss one twitch of your chiseled face. Now you don't have time for a fucking lasse. Hello? And they'll be correct, of course. They'll be so loudly spot on and forthcoming with their love. I am the most loved person in a pretend coma on this planet. Tonight, I plan to fake my own death. I'll hold my breath for as long as it takes, five hours if necessary. Then, safe in the morgue, I'll unzip my body bag, slip out into the spring evening, I'll fashion a mask out of big leaves, I'll head for the cluster of lights on the mountain or wherever the music is coming from, midges won't bite, nighttime will blank me, barmaids ignore me, I won't touch any skin that isn't mine. <laughs> Right, and then... I'm so sorry that happens to you. That sounds terrible. <laughs> right, and then finally, 
this tiny thing. Like, so the funny thing is like, this is so big, you know, but you write so many poems because you never, you can never say it. That's why. Like, and if you said it, then you, it wouldn't be a poem, you know? So um, I kind of end on this one ironically because as, you know, imagining what it'd be like if you, if all the words went and you'd done it. Speechless, it is such a relief for the words. They have been holding so much for so long. Wrapped in furs like Russian soldiers, vowels crammed like backpacks. Their lettered backs are broken from it. Syllables bent from all the shouldering. But tonight, all the words left the house in their thinnest summer jackets. Despite the December cold, they strutted out with barely a stitch on. Now they're shameless on the air, naked as a tune, sung by a sated ghost as she fades from the drawing room into the bright life where all business is complete. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think I can read now. I'm enjoying myself too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it's, um, it's lovely to be here and it's such an honour to get to share a stage bookshop bar stool with Caroline, so thank you. Um, I'm going to read some poems. I'm going to start off with a poem. Um, it's the first poem in this book, The Illustrated Woman, uh, which came out last month, and it's set in Hull, and I'm going to read it for Lisa and embarrass Lisa because she's here all the way from Hull, which I reckon is the furthest that anyone has travelled today, possibly, although someone can prove me wrong after. Um, so this is that you'll know where, exactly where this is, I think. Fail safe. Give me a cigarette at the end of the line in the land of green ginger. Lean towards me so September's a tipped flame. Your body's a struck match. Let all this catch and take. Sip lager from the day's unsteady glass. While colours fail above the humber dock, then my words fail too. And I talk of finding them the way someone might say finding cancer. Look out with me until the sky becomes the heat haze round a fire and the packet image of a woman in intensive care is a pale girl painted by Vermeer, her turban and the bright risk of her stare, half intimate, the evening held in her full earring, how it might be pearl, how it might be polished tin. Um, I was originally going to call this collection Failsafe and then various people pointed out to me that it sounded like I was quite literally setting myself up for failure. I'm very interested in failure and the failure of words in particular. And I was thinking about that last poem of yours, Carolyn, like what the words hold, um, um, which really, really resonates with me. Um, and in the end, it, it, it became the illustrated woman uh, because quite a lot of it deals with... Um, the history of the figure of the tattooed lady in, in, in culture and the, the different ways that they've uh, been viewed. And I got really interested in some of those stories from the Victorian sort of uh, era and how this was one of the only professions where a working class woman could earn 
more than her male counterpart because the tattooed female body was then considered to be more scandalous. Um, and I, I've, I've become very interested in the pictures that we might choose to represent us and the stories that they might tell or not tell. Um, so I'm going to read some poems that are from this sequence um, uh, called The Illustrated Woman. Um, and I'll kind of introduce bits and pieces as I, as I, as I go. Um, the Illustrated Woman. An inventory of the subject's skin found that she was completely covered, not as a map covers the terrain, but as a river covers its stones. Yes, even the insides of her ears, even her labia, even the ridges of her back teeth. We know this to be impossible. It is as if she wanted to leave no room for anything to touch her. She was not tall, nor was she broad across the shoulders. Her mouth may have been small, but singling out her facial features was difficult. Such was the density of the ink that joined them. You might say she designed herself. Amongst the most impressive was a horse standing on its hind legs, rearing on her back, nostrils steaming. When he first examined her, the coroner reports he heard a noise as if a great tree had fallen, a crash and then a quickening, something not unlike the thunder of hooves. Um, I haven't been able to stop thinking about that amazing image in your poem, Carol, about the, the heart and like the, the, the two bits going together like a coconut shell and the horse's hooves. And I love how poems can speak to each other. I feel like the ghost of the hooves is in the yeah, horse. Yeah, like galloping one. one another. Kind of gallop from one into the other. Um, anyway, uh, this is called A Well-Known Beach and it's a found poem, which means that the, the, the words are not mine, but the arrangement of the words is, if that makes sense. Um, so the, the words come from an article um, from Psychology Today that I found called What People Really Think About Women with Tattoos. I generally find that if there's anything that you're reading that, that begins with what people really think about, <laughs> it's a bad sign. <laughs> um, a well-known beach. This study examined the approach behaviour of men to women lying on a well-known beach. The women were reading, well-known, lying flat on their stomachs, some with a tattoo prominently displayed on their lower backs. On a well-known beach, women were reading flat on their well-known stomachs, some with a tattoo on their lower backs, some without. On a well-known beach, men were more likely to approach the women with visible tattoos, not because they found them to be more attractive, but because the women, well-known, reading on their lower backs, because they believed the tattooed women the men well-known, the women lying on their flat stomachs, but because they believed the tattooed women would be more likely to have sex, well-known, prominently displayed on their lower backs, more likely to have sex on the first date than their clear-skinned counterparts. Couldn't make that phrase up, could you? Their clear-skinned <laughs> counterparts. Um, so some of these are stories... Uh, of some of my own tattoos. But are the stories true or not? You'll never know. <laughs> Goes back to that thing of people. I think poetry, you get this more than other forms for some reason. People think that everything that has happened is otherwise, maybe, I don't know, otherwise we wouldn't write that. I don't know. Yes. Uh, first, 
Because your anger was a winter branch and your cottage all beams out of true. Because you lost it when I laughed under my breath, the time your staffy accidentally nutted you, lunging at a stick too big for her. Because of the virginity you took and never knew, the meals you cooked with aubergine and parmesan that made me feel I could be your age. Because you let me undo my own buttons, because the opportunities were few. Because you said you wouldn't make me choose between us and university, then I chose and you chose too. Because you told me while we watched a film where somebody was snorkeling and didn't turn your face away so your words were bubbles lit blue. Because of your double bed, your body, the music I still travel through. Because you were a stone chat, your voice was rock on rock and you took me to a quarry for the view. Because I sobbed with my face on the steering wheel in moonstruck laybys and my grandma said the moon was only passing through. This ink shape levering from the hinge of my spine, my first tattoo, was meant to be a closing door, me turning my back on you. Um, this is also, this is a longer poem, this is also about a, um, a lower back tattoo uh, or about one of the terms that sometimes gets used for it, which you might have heard it, which is tramp stamp. Tramp stamp, aka slag tag, aka sometimes informal disparaging, aka my first tattoo at 18, a Celtic swirl on my lower back, slant like the brand of the cattle iron the young steer quietening steam a mushroom cloud in wedding crashes vince vaughan says tattoo might as well be a bullseye do i mean vince vaughan's character the eye of a bull is a teak and burnt sienna marble which blanches with stress the sclera growing Scientists have found that painting large eyes on the backsides of cows can protect them from lions and other predators. In modern branding practice, the animal no longer has its legs tied but is forced to run into a confined area and secured. The scent of burning hair is like charcoal. I write, the cattle brands of Mitchell County, Texas are an ancient alphabet Glagolitic wall writing I saw at home below the Assumption of Mary. But if you're looking just above my waistband, you don't care, I went to Croatia. Two types of popular restraint are the cattle crush and the branding cradle. Would you prefer to be squeezed or rocked towards what hurts you? Some cattle brands that are pleasing to the mouth include Crazy R, Diamond, Flying, Lazy, Slash... When I was growing up, low-rise jeans and BSE were trending. In 2009, Barbie had a lower back tattoo. By 2015, a barmaid was able to go on TV and cover up the words, keep calm and carry on, her favourite saying inked neatly above her buttocks. On ranches, a horizontal line is called a rail. Antonio Porchia said, I know what I have given you. I do not know what you have received. The barmaid said she couldn't understand the peals of laughter as she bent to restock fridges, white t-shirt riding up. If horses are branded on their hooves, it is not permanent. 
In 2015, Dr. X wrote, women with tramp stamps are considered less athletic, less motivated, less honest, less generous and less artistic. Soon afterwards, he found blonde waitresses get bigger tips, men are less likely to assist women who tie their hair up and that he was being investigated. <laughs> I can't look at cattle brands without imagining my fingers stroking them, without touching the raised outline of my first tattoo. If you wanted, you might ask who held me steady and who made the mark. You might be curious about the hands. Um, yeah, and I'm really interested in the difference between that, that Antonio Portia idea of him. Uh, I know what I've given you. I do not know what you've received. And um, one of the recurring themes that comes up when you look at the stories of um, Victorian era illustrated women in the circus, particularly in America, is um, the stories and the mythology around um, uh, their their tattoos. So, for instance, one of the the common myths was always that. Um, each time they came out into the, the, it was like, this is the first time that she's ever allowed anybody to see her tattooed body. Whereas in fact, like every night that week, she'd been in the circus. Um, and I was shocked to um, reading about um, the origin stories of the tattoo. So there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of mythology around um, women having supposedly been kidnapped by First Nations Americans and forcibly tattooed. Um, whereas in reality, it was usually either they'd had them done of their own free will or it was their husband or, or their, their brother or someone like that who'd, who'd started this off as a money spinning thing. So the difference between the uh, the storytelling and the stories told by the pictures and the individual stories that the women had um, was really interesting to me. Um, I'm going to skip to somewhere else in the book. So I think this links a little bit to there's, there's a sequence in here, or a couple of sequences that, that are about um, women in porn, um, and which is a nightmare from a permissions point of view. <laughs> and uh, I'll read a couple of those um, from later in the book. Um, this is about um, it's, it's about uh, uh, a woman who who died a few years ago. And there's a John Ronson podcast which you may have come across that's that's um, really really uncovers this story and looks at it from lots of different angles. It's called The Last Days of August, um, and it's about a, a woman called August Ames. So this is this is from the sequence. It's called August. Even when the Camarillo storms had cleared and left her body motionless, suspended from a tree, the boys behind the Walmart store could still find August Ames online. Long face, slim thighs, her biog in the present tense. When the wind drops, the dust settles with a, with a desert calm across the San Fernando Valley. Dried leaves and beer cans halt in all the corners of the parking lot. A kid's baseball cap lies abandoned. The moon is white, stately as a death mask. On screen, August moans. Think of these pixels lifted by the hurricane, swirled into new colours, scattered into space. Imagine they could come to rest in the neon of a motel sign, turned to bright motes in your eyes. And from later in the sequence, um, this is porn star name. 
It's the name of your first pet and your mother's maiden name. I wrote mine on my green jotter at school, Lucy Pound, in the maths class, where James and Ben poked rulers down my top and hissed they'd seen my look-alike on European Blue Review last night. I thought of Lucy Pound then, contorting herself through each imaginary scene, of my mother's wedding day, her lost name, our rabbit digging away out of her run again and again. Um, and I will finish back with the, the tattoo sequence, I think. Um, going back to this idea of permanence, which I think is a bit of a preoccupation through the book. I was just thinking that, thinking about those, uh, that sequence and those poems and the idea of the, the digital and the fleetingness and the permanence of it all at the same time and what tattoos mean in terms of... Uh, um, you know, the different ways people think about them, whether you think of it as a, a terrifying permanence or whether you think that they're, they're as fleeting as the human canvas that they're upon or whether you think it's not canvas at all. Um, so this, this, I'll finish with this one. It's just called On Permanence. My friend says tattoos hide the natural beauty of the naked form. We are swimming at the mill ponds. He steps into cold water and his skin dissolves. My friend has seen me naked three times. We do not speak of it, whether he found me beautiful in the morning. Pure skin, he says, pure design. Around him, the water is gorgeous with stirred up mud, silt hanging in slow clouds. On the bank, I stare down at my legs. I love how the peonies on my right hip include the petal of my deepest glassy scar, how the moles that might kill me are stamens on flowers, how my cellulite gives texture to sketched gritstone and the swifts on my chest are the heart in clumsy motion. I do not think I long to be natural, pure like the floors of airports, like a blank expression, the aftermath of the avalanche that buried your body whole. Each night in the bath, my two-year-old tries to colour me with his pastel crayons, finishing mummy's pictures. He can't leave a page untouched, paints with his fists and feet, pencils the walls. In water, we are all work in progress, disturbing the surface of the green pond. It is always difficult to start. The stones unbalance me. I fall to my knees like a veteran, survivor of wars of my body's own making. Colposcopy, biopsy, sertraline and stitched tears. Let me stay here for a moment. Let me kneel before the sky and let me be humble, untidy. Let me be decorated. I think I will leave it there and then we're going to seamlessly, seamlessly go into... Conversation. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, first of all, um, like her book, you've got to buy it. It is amazing, but also it's like just amazingly structured. Like everything, like activates all, all the other sections of it. Anyway, but you Thank have you. to buy it seriously. <laughs> but um, that that thing about I've got so many questions, but about uh, in a, one of the poems you have a line about um, in a poem I choose what is shown, mm. you know, and you've got this idea of of of. Um, uh, right at the end of, you know, being an illustrated woman and people trying to put you back in a frame and being released from the frame. How much in, how in control do you feel when you're writing? Like, because there's that thing about being natural and being decorated and like poetry, I think what I'm trying to ask is how close to a tattoo is a poem and how different from a tattoo is a poem? Funnily enough, I found when I, um, a few weeks back, I was thinking about this. I found this article that I'd started to write years ago, which was a right mess. And it was basically, I was trying to argue that a poem and a tattoo are very similar. Okay, amazing. But then I found myself arguing before that, like, a rock climb and a tattoo are similar. Uh, sorry, a rock climb and a poem are similar, and that a poem's similar to this and that. And yeah. I think it's just because. <laughs> I don't know if you get this impulse as well, but to, to link poetry to all things. I think it's just because I think of poetry as the, the, the sort of the thing that makes sense of it all for me and that is like the ultimate way of expressing what I want to say. And so it, it kind of has that, that feeling of permanence. But yeah, it is, it's, it's, it is like a tattoo because it's sort of... You're in control, but it's also an illusion of control. It's a controlled pain. Yeah. Uh, and it's a collaboration in a way, because it's a collaboration between you and the page and you and the reader. Do you feel... Like, how much oh, do you good. feel... In, I'm, I'm turning your own question around See, on I you. was going to say that, like, I write poems, I think, because I want them to feel like tattoos. Mm -hmm. And then I keep writing them because they're not. Okay. <laughs> do yeah. you know what I mean? Because and, and there's, cause this other thing that keeps on coming up in your book is this thing about, like, uncertain light... Right, mm. there's so much of like like light that's uncertain. You can't you can't keep it still, you know. Whereas you can with a tattoo. What's kind of so amazing about it? It made me you know, want to have more. I've only got a couple that I got when I was 16, and they're just like they're not. They weren't. They're the opposite of deliberate. Do you know what I mean? And like, but but this idea of 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 choosing an image and then and then having it and going yeah, that's what I want. Like. Um, often isn't what I feel. Poetry feels much more like, like that uncertain light to me. I'm trying to turn into a tattoo and then I have to write another one. But it's kind of like, so I'm always interested in whether people choose to cover that. I've never had a tattoo yeah. cover-up um, and I've got some not very good tattoos, which I could have covered up, but I sort of feel about them how I might feel about early poems. And I was interested in thinking yeah. about like, how do you know, how do you, because I think we probably both started writing poetry at a similar-ish age, maybe yeah. like quite young, but you know, you, you read some of your poems when you're 15 and they completely stand the test of time. Oh, A lot of mine need to be, like, put in the mincer or the fire or something. <laughs> but, like, that thing... But I would never... Like, if I'd published something, I don't think I'd ever kind of... I might go, oh, I, that's not what I'm writing now. But I, so, uh, how, how did it feel for you going back over, like, selecting from... 
like yeah. which poems stay and which poems it was quite it was uh, like <coughs> I was surprised by how like painful it was even though it's such a lucky thing to do to put your selectors together like the reason I've got I've got an epigraph at the beginning which says um now when I address you as someone else speaking I couldn't be in two places at once could I you sound like a real fruitcake man right which is this idea of yeah being two places at once but that's I could because I could feel myself in those poems um but often I would also want to kind of go back in time and like look after myself but if I did that yeah. then the poem wouldn't exist you know you had that, that line of your book about being the, the poems being the tattoos being hurt into existence mm -hmm. that, that, well now I'm going to start arguing back that poems are like tattoos you see <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um like the there's poems that I wouldn't write now because I'm better now but there was also poems that I couldn't write now because you can't experience something for the first time twice and also now I I think sometimes I have to fight not to try so hard that I, I, and I, and I didn't care as much when I was younger. And often I was lit, I was only writing to deal with being lonely and to deal with it. I was only writing because it was like I was on fire and it was a way of putting myself out. Whereas often now, sometimes I have to, you know, I can't, I, I still think it's like if I sit down and go, well, I've got to write a poem for my career now, it's going to be shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm constantly trying to trick myself back into how the reason I wrote when I was a teenager, and, but, but you can't do that all the time because it's not like synonymous with a kind of a responsible life either. You can't just be constantly, my technique for writing a book used to be, basically just be like, blow up my whole life and then just write a poem from the that write a book from the debris. Like I never had a relationship that out outlived the book. It's true. And now I can't do that again. Like I have the next book has to come from staying. You know, but but I've just stuck with that technique from being a 15. Well, that's probably why poems don't like, feel like tattoos, because they feel like you know, and then you airborne. can also just if you then then you do think, well, this is what I would do. I yeah. justify the life chaos by going, I need it for the book. Yeah, if yeah, there's yeah. No, but then you realise it's not necessarily that relationship that the poems will always be there. Yeah, exactly. They, I do, do you ever feel that? Well, no, I, I I'm imagining you don't because there's so much variety in the selected, but. I, I imagine if I was trying to select from my poems, I, I'm worried I would find out that I'm basically trying to write the same poem oh. again and again. Oh yeah, and no. again. but I think, but I think, but I think I feel that like all the same time. All the time, reading through, I'm like, well, this is clearly this is exactly the same poem. It's got all different words and different ideas, you know, and it's like four lines long, and this one's like a million lines long, but it's the same poem, you know. Mm. <laughs> Often. Yeah, it, it's just like you'll have dreams, and they're all about the same thing, but they're completely different movies. Yeah, you know, it's circling the same obsession, but that's kind of that's kind of good. Like you don't want to try and you don't want to kind of vary your obsession. You just want to go, just want to tunnel. There's that thing, isn't there, about people being? I've forgotten who said this. It's a famous person that people are either hedgehogs or foxes or something. Either either they like have one thing that they're or they know a lot about lots of different things. Yeah, and I think even when I'm trying to sort of like bring all these different things in, yeah, I end up. Be, and that's very much what happens, I think, when you put in a collection together. That's how the emergent theme. Yes, but comes that's what in. makes a good book. That's what makes a good book is that it's this illusion of variety that actually is like you're like, oh yeah, whoa, <laughs> right, and then you realise it's all circling the same thing. So, sorry, illusion of variety sounds like it doesn't work, but it is. It's like suddenly you realise, oh, everything has a chemical reaction with each other, and they're all meant to be there, but you didn't even realise it when you were writing it. Yeah. Like your subconscious knitted it 
it all together for you with like those invisible stitches that surgeons use, and that's like what makes them an amazing collection. And like, you don't mind it, do you? In like, uh, so I, I that thing about writing the same poem or, or having an obsession that you kind of can't get rid of. I enjoy that in other writers' work. Yeah. I kind of it's only in yourself sometimes that you go. Oh, what am I doing here? And I think you're like that, that thing about trick. You're saying about tricking yourself into kind of. I think we have to do that because you've also got to keep, yeah, moving on. Is that is like constantly feeling like you're not there yet? Like there's, you know, and that's. <coughs> what I was going to ask you about research because like a lot of the poems in there, often they'll be like circling around. You know, like you've done had to do some research. You're, you know, inspired by an article or something. But how do you keep that sense of that you're still searching for something while you're writing, despite having some research, you know, next to you? How do you? Yeah, it's tricky, balance isn't it? Because you really do. You kind of, I, I found again and again with this kind of, and I had it when I was writing about some of the stories of like early female climbers in the Alps and stuff like that. There's so much good story telling and good research that just doesn't really make for the best poems yeah and that's that's quite tricky because you really want to include it because it's so good uh, yeah. that you want people to know about it but often it's a bit dead on the page is that because it's finished hard. it's a finished thought yeah maybe the my friend alan who in alan buckley who's a poet as well and who did quite a bit of editorial work on this and he said he, he sort of like unofficially over the years he kind of edits some of my stuff and he he suggested to me that this could be in sections to do with skin and then I was like ah oh, yes it's to do with this but he was saying to me that thing of sometimes the po the experience is the poem or the yeah. the the story is the poem and that's when but it's recognizing that that I find tricky when I'm doing research because I get really caught up in it and also then I get caught up in which stories is it okay for me to retell and which yeah. ones shouldn't I retell and then that and then that self-consciousness sort of takes over as well and, and yes yeah. and then, then you see then that links into your whole section about you know revenge porn and people taking images and how do you how do you take an image respectfully and but but also transform it how how do how as poets do we do we collect images but in the in an opposite way the, the ethics you thing I mean? of writing and I, I yeah. guess it links to to what you were saying about biography and autobiography yeah. and also like how do we write about other people and what techniques yeah. do you use to do that if it's like fictionalizing it or or finding a metaphor or, or stuff like that there's there's it's always a risk isn't it and it, it yeah. always feels like a risk and it it's it always makes me think about, um, maybe it's the themes of this book that brought it up, but um, the scene in that uh, comedy, Fresh Meat, where Howard is the geologist. They're all students at uni, and this geologist, Howard, is like, um, he has this kind of revelation. It's like some kind of feminist revelation. And then he, he, he starts searching for ethical, free-range porn. Because he's suddenly <laughs> got very worried. And then he's like, oh, no. There isn't what it's all problematic in some way oh no and I feel a bit like that about about these things about how we see others how we depict others and ourselves yeah. and and about how how literature works it's kind of like there's yeah, no yeah. ethical free-range literature because like, it's, it's, it's like I, as I was asking that question I was like how do you take an image respectfully it sounded like a right the right question and I was thinking I've never asked myself that question ever mm. like because when I'm writing a poem 
even if I write about a real person, I genuinely don't think about anyone else reading it. If I start thinking about someone else reading it, it's a bit like, even though I don't bake, I've heard that you're not supposed to keep on opening the oven door, are you? Because mm -hmm. the cake it makes sinks. it go flat. Yeah? yeah, yeah. So if I, because if I start thinking about what people will think, then the cake sinks. So and then I'll end up with a poem, which often will be, if I feel love for the person, will be full of love. Like you can't kind of get around it, but won't necessarily be I also super respectful, you know. And then I'm, but then I kind of can let myself off the hook because I'm like, well, the poem exists now. What am I going to do? It's, it's yeah, a yeah. piece of art, <laughs> you know. Happen. But I think it's because I, I, I was going the other question. I always should let people ask questions, but I want to ask one more question because. I haven't written any poems about my son yet. I've written a few poems about before he was, you know, was born. But like, I, I find it so difficult. Maybe, maybe for that reason. Maybe, maybe it's just like I've left it for so long now. I'm like, ah. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, what I loved about reading your book was like, oh, just come on, come on, come on, come on, go. Like, do you have those blocks? Is he, is he a simple muse? What, how do you, yeah, how do you, how do you do it? Sometimes it's it's cold, cold, simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, how do you do it? I think, uh, I just want some advice. That's an basically. interesting topic, and in that I think it links, and I'm sure there's other themes like this, that um, I really struggled with, right? I was trying to write some poems about pregnancy and childbirth and early motherhood, and I, I was writing it concurrently with some non-fiction, so that complicated things. Yeah. But I, the thing I really struggled with um, is, again, it's that kind of self-consciousness. It's the opening the oven door uh, thing, um, where I just kept thinking to myself, this has been done before, this has been done before. There's loads of brilliant poems about these themes that are out there. I really shouldn't be writing this. This isn't going to be interesting, blah, 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 blah. And I had to sort of have a word with myself yeah. at some point and say, that's never stopped me from wanting to write a poem about love or death before. Yeah. Um, so why would, why would that particular self-consciousness apply to anything around yeah. pregnancy? Or, uh, I thought maybe that means it's important to try and find a way of writing the familiar again and again, in yeah. a way. But um, yeah, it's, it's not. It's not been simple. In that it's kind way. of what you say, yeah. almost like like you've, you've still got to juggle, no matter how precious the th the objects that you're holding become. Yeah, the juggling has to be the same. So like, yeah, even if you're literally <laughs> feel feel like you're literally holding some babies, you've got to juggle <laughs> with them the same as you juggled with every other subject matter. And that's the like, that's that's when it gets like yeah. And, and you're going to have the same kind of lightness in order to get to the to the profundity. You can't start off all profound because you can't you can't juggle like that. Well, maybe you can. Like I bet you can't. Good try. Good try. <laughs> it, it makes me think about. Sorry, I know that was going to be last question, but I have one last question okay. too, if that's all right. And then we will we will see if there are other questions. Um, but I I always come back to that line of yours um, that it that you you read the poem today where. I've forgotten the title now. Sorry, I've forgotten the title of the poem, right. but it's where you talk about writing the truth. Why don't you oh, just yeah. write the truth? It's a real joke. Uh, and, yeah. and then it's like, why? Yeah, why would um, I write the And I'm fascinated by that and sort of what what poetry's relationship to truth is. For you. And yeah. when, when you look at your sort of development of work over that time and take that overview, is there a sense of like cumulative truth or is it that thing you said earlier about just the, the tattoo thing of like trying to get it right and not feeling like you've quite but I, done I, it? I think it's almost like 
I find, I find there's something like dishonest about writing a poem <coughs> where you are looking the reader in the eye and you are saying, this is my truth, if you don't actually feel that way about the subject matter you're talking about. Do you know what I mean? So I think mm. for me, truth is like, you've got to, it's also, it's also to do with your relationship to that truth in order for the poem to be honest, right? Like occasionally, like once every four years, I might write a poem that is like, okay, I feel, I feel you know, clear right mm. now. And I feel like I can lean out the window at this blank page and just go, you boy, come here. The hell do we tell you? You know what I mean? But most of the time, you know, it's, I am, I'm t like twitching and, and I do want to lean out the page and I do have stuff, I do want to be honest, but I'm going to have to come at it like this because otherwise I'd be lying. Yeah. I'd be pretending to be clear or pretending to feel like I was comfortable. So it's like the truth of the poem is, is the attitude and the, the, the evasion of the truth is part of the truth. Like, does that make yeah, sense? It totally, absolutely yeah. makes sense. And maybe that's Other, Otherwise we'd like around. to go around pretending to be like, you know. But that's what I love about the idea, the appeal of a tattoo is like, there's a kind of feel of like, aha, I, you know, this is ink the truth on me. But yet yeah. you'll never finish, and I love that thing about the, your son, like trying to finish your pictures in. And and you 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 never well, I, I believe that there is in the Guinness Book of World Records, there's somebody who's ninety seven percent covered or something like that that got their eyeballs tattooed and stuff like that. But but mostly it's always going to be quite a work in progress because there's always more. Yeah, there's always more space. And, and even they've got more. that three percent. Yeah, exactly. They're constantly going. Whoa, where is that? What did I do? <laughs> <laughs> I think the most tattooed woman in the world is like ninety three percent. So she's got seven percent left. So what? Where do you stop? Where do you stop counting the percentage? See, I don't know. Do you count teeth? Do you, do you count, count like tonsils? I'm not sure how they make this distinction. But it's almost like things getting, and it goes back to the idea of the cover up. And this is like back where we started about the poem and the tattoo. Um, I was having my leg tattooed a few years ago when this man walked in, and he he come in. He said, "I'm coming for a cover up." because um, I've got this really old tattoo on my arm and we could see it and it was very faded with age and it was and the tattooist looked at it and he's like oh he's like oh is, is that um is that is that that's really old isn't it and he went yeah it's um I, I was a I was a soldier and and I had it after the day that I came back from from war it was a really old tattoo and he's like and I'm going to cover it with this and I heard the tattooist trying to persuade him not to cover it. She's like, that's a piece of history. That's that's a moment in time. He's like, why don't you leave it and have a new one yeah. that sits next to it and tells another story, maybe what you want to tell now, but but kind of goes there. And maybe that's what we do when we when we write new poems. Yeah. We're kind of just just putting them next. We're not covering the old yeah. one. We're just sort of. I'll, I'll keep over. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I know, I like it. I like it. The idea that we just like, okay, look at this arm today, guys. Yeah. There's, there's, oh, there's more I could say about that looking thing because that's very interesting. Yeah. Like the paradox of look at me, don't look at me, which I also think is like what we do as writers. Yeah. But definitely. I'm going to be quiet and see if anyone's got a question in the audience <laughs> because otherwise we'll just talk and talk and talk. I think there's roving mind. Stick your hand up. <laughs> one there. Um, how much do you have a collection idea in mind when you write? Like, how does it affect sort of recurring themes in your poems? You know, do you, at what point do you decide you're working towards something and how does it shape what you're writing? And both of you, 
please. Um, well, I used to not think about that at all. Like the last two collections, I thought about it a tiny bit more, but generally only once I've got like about like 30 poems and then you start kind of looking at them and you start seeing what they're, what they're orbiting around and, and then you start noticing things that are missing like, but even though you can't quite name it, you can't stop. It's like, do you ever, have you ever played a video game where they'll show you a map at the beginning, and, but it's not lit up, only the bit that you've travelled into is lit up. And then you, you're like, okay, you can sense that the bits of the map of the collection that aren't, you haven't lit up yet. And then you have to walk into those bits, and then it starts forming a bit more. Um, and then you might have the poems, but then, but then, oh, I got so geeky about order. This is why, like, her, oh my God, the order of her book. Oh my God, right? <laughs> because you can arrange the poems in different orders and it becomes a completely different book. That's why with this one, I wanted to make sure that it, you could read it as a book. Like, it's not in the order of the original books. I wanted it to be a different thing. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's so many different, like, geeky stages to go through but that you have to trust your subconscious at the beginning. How, how, do, you, how do you go about it? Well, and I think I do, like your, your selected, does, it reads like a, it's refreshing, because it does read like a book. Oh, do you know, good. like not, not yes. a collection yes. of bits from books that have, it makes it something new. Um, and yeah, you're, you're so right, that's what ordering does. And I, I, I guess, yeah, it's similar for me, that exactly what you said, really. Um, I guess this book in particular was a, was quite a long process and I tend to find with collections I think it's finished approximately two or three years before it's actually finished. I'm like, here's the book and then it's something it's all right but it's a bit dead or something or I'm, I'm waiting for another thing to connect with it or so in this case um, it kind of came out of a bit of a conflicted process in a way because I thought the book was finished and then my um, my editor at Chatter read it and she was really perceptive um, spot on comments you know the kind of comments that editors make that you almost dread them because it means work like a lot of work yeah 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 like an emotional right. work as well like yeah <laughs> sort of like it's not ready and I was going oh no no I want it to be ready um, and she sort of picked up on these poems I've been writing some poems about my mum my mum had just been diagnosed with a um a degenerative illness and I've been writing some poems making sense of that I think to do with the body and the frame and stuff like yeah. that and she was saying oh I think the body is the theme here I think you should be writing about the body more directly and writing about your own body and pregnancy and stuff and that filled me with fear I was like mm. I don't want to write about and I don't want that to be the only subject I don't think that's so I sat with it for ages feeling despondent and like I'd lost my way with the book. But then it clicked and you get that moment where it clicks into place. Yeah. Um, and, and I was thinking about, well, but what is it that interests me about? And of course it was body modification and the yeah. idea of modifying and how other people try to modify us and how we might modify ourselves and all of those things. And that gave me the emblem, kind of the metaphor of the tattoo. That's so interesting, because one of my favourite quotes from Selima Hill is like, uh, something like, I'm paraphrasing, but keep writing until the subject matter is no longer what the poem is about. So you've got yeah. to like, you know, even, so, you know, like, for example, that famous poem by Sylvia Plath, Mushrooms, you know, you keep reading it until you're like, okay, this definitely isn't about mushrooms anymore. We're not, not about mushrooms. But, but, but that idea that... Um, <laughs> In your book, like that, you have to, had to keep writing about the body until it stopped being about the body. Yeah. You know, because now reading the book, you, you know, it's it's 
it's uh, it's not about that. <laughs> I mean, it is, and, it, and it's beyond it. But it's hard, isn't it? And it's very hard. I, f I find it very hard to give. If other writers ask me for like advice about structuring a collection or about when it's ready and publishing and stuff like that, and I feel like my answer is a, is, is quite a, a lame or dispiriting answer, which is just like when you think it's ready, wait another <laughs> like wait another few years and then it's probably ready and yeah. nobody wants to hear that and that's not necessarily true it might not take that long for it, but but for me I, I think the interest comes with like layers of, yeah yeah like, what I mean you've either got to wait or you've got to just like actively push yeah. and, and get disqualified from the book and keep on keep on writing into the thing that you think you finished yeah until you realize that you haven't finished at all Yes. And then you find the final bit. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You just uh, assume that the map is bigger than the... Than the, the, the assume that, the, that you're in a murder house that has more, <laughs> more rooms than you have seen, despite the fact that you're, <laughs> you're the landlord. Do you find as well that sometimes reading, reading can be the unexpected, like, not even just poetry, but you might, I, might, I might sometimes read something and that helps I have a bit of a light bulb moment where something falls into, especially if I read stuff that's very different stylistically or is tonally, it's somehow very different from what I'm yeah. able to write myself. It can sometimes yeah. shortcut that process. Or you'll bit. read something and feel like subconsciously, or, the, or you'll be feel something and feel like, oh, they've held back and I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you don't, yeah. Sometimes I feel that with my own poems when I read them after I've published them and finished them. I'm like, there's, there's still... Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be tempted if I was doing a selected. I'm worried that I'd go and, like, were you ever tempted at any point to actually... There was a few poems that something. I, like, started rewriting and then I was like, no, I, should, I, I shouldn't put this in. If I'm having to do this much work on it, it can't go in there, you know. And there was a few poems that were, like... You know, didn't feel like offensive when I was seventeen, and but when it was a bit like, uh, or there was a few jokes that, like, you know, not not jokes, but things like, there was a whole poem about that I wrote, yeah, when I was seventeen, it was talking about like raping teenagers, and like, which is it was it was like dangerous to, as a seventeen-year-old, but to publish it as a thirty-six-year-old, there was a few things that just didn't like. Translates Trans over yeah. time, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and so I did a bit of tinkering, but like not not too much that actually it was a different poem. You know, the yeah. question. Uh, hi, yeah, just based uh, based on what you guys are saying about editing and going back to work, and kind of balancing that with preserving like the moment or the spontaneity of that instinct that led you to write the poem in the yeah. first place. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's it's so key. So, I think like the first draft is almost as important as the the final draft it, because if you if you don't like step out into the nothingness on that first draft, if you don't take like some kind of risk in that first draft, then you can rewrite it as much as you like, but it'll be like giving mouth to mouth to a log. Like it just doesn't work because there's something something in that something in the emotional risk of that first draft that is vital. Even if the, even if you then do like forty drafts, so. Then after that, all of the words might change. Like literally, all of the words might change. But there's something about the push of that first draft. And then I keep all of the drafts because often I will go like beyond the final draft, and I'll read the poem and I'll think, "Why is it dead?" And then I'll go back to like draft <coughs> 18 or something and realize that I've cut like a really 
not, uh, plain looking line from the middle that I thought didn't matter and it turned out to be a ma major artery and the whole thing's just bled out and died. And because and you don't necessarily know where the, where the poem is like holds its emotion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you will take out all of, you'll, and sometimes you can like overwrite a line and, and be like, this isn't quite original enough. I'll make it a little bit more original, a bit more original. And then suddenly the poem becomes so written that it loses all of its heart. Mm. So, so you're totally right. Like preserving that spontaneity and the heart of it is this really kind of delicate balance where you have to go back and forth between drafts. It, and it's that, that that clash between being decorated and being natural, and like, oh, oh you actually want to be natural, you, you know, because you're trying to make it feel like, oh, I just said this, just, ah, I've just said this into the air, you know, perfectly. It's or imperfectly, the, perfectly. The, the decorated natural balance is fascinating as a as a a, a kind of similarity with poems because it's like how do you decide and like how do you, like and you, the, one of the interesting things I found about writing about tattoos is that I don't know if you get this but like if you've got a subject or a theme or a central conceit in your book then people talk to you about the theme. So yeah. at the moment, I'm ending up having loads of conversations about tattoos, which is great, because I love it, and you get some great stories. Yeah. But then inevitably, sometimes, so like, uh, I was at a festival in Germany, and one of the other writers said to me, oh, yeah, I don't like tattoos. I don't like tattoos, especially on women, but you've got about the right number, actually. Like, the, <laughs> the, the spacing between them is quite good, and you probably shouldn't get more, because, like, then... And I was thinking about the poem. Yeah. And I was also thinking of the irony of having written... <laughs> writing about um, how we determine like, the attempts to determine so you can never escape it because someone's going to go no that's too much or that's and, and even yeah. the idea of too much or excess is but and I, I I think my tendency is to overcut things when I write I write yeah I compare things back way too much but the idea that um like in terms of your own appearance or something you might choose to um, have a certain kind of excess that is chosen by yeah. you. And very interested in the idea of what's an acceptable tattoo and what isn't and all those kind of things. And blah, blah, blah. Anyway, another yeah. topic. I think we, we're probably talking for longer than we're supposed to be talking for. Um, is that right? Should we... It's a treat to have you talking for any length of time, <laughs> but uh, save some time so we can sell some books. Yeah, OK, OK. <laughs> should, we, should we do one more question? Yeah, let's do one more question. That's a good idea. Hello. Where we got to right. go? Yeah, uh, yeah, good. Thank you. Um, I love that reading so much. Thank you. Um, I really liked what you were saying about the relationship between reading and writing. And sorry to put you on the spot, but I was just wondering who you're reading and enjoying at the moment. Oh, good question. When it, whenever someone asks that, my mind goes instantly back. Yeah. <laughs> Do you get yeah. Well, it's good because I mean, I've literally just, been fi just fi finished your book, so I'm reading you, <laughs> you, right now. And uh, um, rereading one of my favourite James Tate books called Shroud of the Gnome. Which is a great title. It's a Shra really, really Shra good Shroud of the Gnome. Um, phenomenal title. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I tend to read, uh, this is a bad confession, but in, in the last few years especially, I don't know if this is to do with, with having a young child. I don't think it, sh it doesn't really make sense that it would be because you'd think you could read poems in a more self-contained way. I'm reading a lot more non-fiction and fiction than I am um, a poetry so I've just finished reading um Acts of Service by Lillian no Lillian, oh, 
I'm not going to be able to remember. Anyway, acts of service. Someone will yeah. know who that's like by. Lily it's really good. Yeah, um, I love it. And it, thematically, it made me think of some of the things that I was... So I, I often get that when I'm working on a poetry book. I might read fiction and it feeds into the themes. Um, and I have also been reading Kirsty Bell's book about Berlin. Um, about the, I think it's called Undercurrents. Um, which is a Fitzcarraldo book, and I love all the books that Fitzcarraldo editions publish. There's sort of you pick it up and you just know there's going to be something magical that's yeah. in there. Uh, and poetry-wise, the, well, well, the, well, the, well, the thing is, because I, I, judged, I judged the T.S. Eliot Prize last year, which was obviously like an amazing honour, but it like you then it changes the way for a whole year. It changes the way you read poetry, which isn't the way I, I like to read poetry. So and yeah. so I'm looking looking forward to this year getting back into my scrappy way of reading rather than this kind of, you know, through a lens of supposed, like, I don't know, expertise. This is like a sort of, um, I'm going to pretend that I'm not monopolising the questions by asking another question because this is a quick okay. fire question. Right. Do you read poetry books chronologically? Yes, yes, And yes. do you read them in one sitting or do you read no. them over? Like, I would definitely read them chronologically because, like, I, I, I see the order as, like, a poem in itself. And um, uh, if it's good, I will read it in one sitting. O like, often, you know, sometimes the, po the book will give you natural pauses, won't it? You know, that you can step away from it. But I, that, that is the best feeling, is, is reading a poetry book almost in one, in one sitting. I like, I like that. And then knowing that I'll go back to it. Yeah. What about and, you? And knowing that you, you know, there will be poems that call you back to them yeah. as well. Yeah, and that, like well, there, there are poems like, you know, like when people um, <laughs> are in a big group and they're trying to tap, they always do it in Leicester Square, they've got a, 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 an umbrella and they try to call to like someone across the crowd, like, come here, come here. Like, I love how in a poetry book, like, poems do that to each other, like, you, page 48, page 48, over here, 83, you know? And like, if you don't read it in one sitting, you can't hear the poems kind of like calling to each other over the heads of the other poems, you know? I'm such a geek. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to make a book out of all your brilliant metaphors for poetry <laughs> that would just be like aphorisms of all the, what poetry does. It's <laughs> called Get to the Fucking Point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess. Oh, yeah. that, I, okay. I, and I think we should launch Get to the Fucking Point in, uh, in this bookshop in uh, 2026 and uh, what a marvellous business it will be thank you, thank you so much Helen thank you so much uh, thank you so much Karen that was a, a proper treat thanks for listening to find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.